Strong bodies, kind hearts, unstoppable minds. You're listening to Strong Girls Pod, where strong women share their stories to inspire strong girls. Welcome to episode eight of Strong Girls Pod, brought to you by WIS. Today, I am sitting down with the Strong Girls United legend, Skylar Espinosa. Skylar, an alumna of Columbia Women's Rowing, Stanford Women's Lightweight Rowing, and a now professional cyclist, has such an awesome story and journey to share. Her life and athletic career have been chock full of transitions, and amidst the changes, she's been able to maintain her elite status and achieve goals. Coming from a family of elite and heavy endurance-focused athletes, it's in Skylar's nature to compete and push her aerobic capacity to new limits. Her most recent transition? Skylar is now competing as a tandem team pilot for her blind partner, Hana, as they are working towards Paralympic qualification as sprint cyclists, and we are rooting for them every step of the way. But before we jump in on this awesome episode, we are going to hear from our amazing sponsor, WIS. Going back with our WIS tips series. Tip number three. Build good habits, build a routine, and start planning early. So tip number two, having that steady and regular income leads to really building a habit. If you build a habit around having that income, having a routine, planning around that money, it's going to lead you to tip number four, which is save in buckets. Save in a short-term, a medium-term, and a long-term bucket. So short-term bucket can be... You're buying yourself something for your birthday or you're buying a friend something for their birthday in in a week or two, right? That's a short-term bucket. A medium-term bucket is something later on. Depending on your age, that may mean in six months is a medium-term bucket. And a long-term bucket helps you really conceptualize what your goals are later on in life. It's going to help you, you know, align that bucket around what do you want to be? What do you want to be later? Like, what's your plan? Have a plan. Do you want to, you know, do you want to go to college? Do you want to go to medical school? Do you want to become a journalist? Do you want to become a veterinarian? It, it, you know, it helps you. You can talk about your money um, in the context of, of what you want to be. And that's what the long-term bucket really is for. I love it. Hi, everybody. Welcome back to Strong Girls Pod. I'm your host, Charlie Ekstrom, and I am here with the wonderful Skylar Espinosa. She is a professional cyclist. She has worked pretty closely with Strong Girls United the last several years, has really just been a huge piece, not only of our SGU family, but I'm really excited for her to share kind of the journey that she's on and this Olympic journey through cycling and all the sports that she did prior. And Skylar, thank you so much for making the time and coming on today. Thank you so much for having me, Charlie. I feel like we have spent a lot of time in like similar worlds through like Stanford and Strong Girls, but maybe not like gotten the chance to sit down and chat as much as I would have liked. So I'm really excited for this conversation. I know it makes me so excited because again, I've seen you in the weight room in at Stanford when we were first getting to know each other when you were coaching lightweights and I'm like, oh my gosh, I would see Skylar in the annex as we're at Lyft or I would see you on phone calls for strong girls or we would just communicate in text and 
through the last three years, we've had a lot of interconnectedness, but not as necessarily deep of conversations. So this not only is like a benefit for all of the listeners out there, but it's a huge benefit for us to get to chat and for me to hear more of your story because I don't know, we just haven't gotten the chance to do it. And it makes me so excited to do it. (laughs) Yeah, best of all the worlds. Exactly. All right. I have kind of introduced you, but for all of our listeners, for those who are listening who don't necessarily know you, know your background for everything, I would love for you to share your background, your sport, your journey through sport, and like just overall your story, kind of how your career started from the get-go. So we've got time and I want to hear all of the little details that you are willing to share. Well, thank you. Um, I grew up in Maine, so shout out to all the strong girls in Maine. And I am one of four kids, so I have three brothers. And I definitely came from an athlete family, which um, has been such a blessing because, like, I've never grown up thinking that sports aren't important or sports weren't like a legitimate way to spend your time. My aunt is a gold medalist in the Olympics and the like in the marathon. So I got to like hold her Olympic medal when I was a kid, see that journey like in a very real way. I was always like very active as a kid. I played like a lot of baseball, a lot of softball, like just like running. My parents are runners, just big like endurance sport fam. I ran a little bit like cross country in middle school and um, also did like cross country ski racing. And then in high school, I ran two marathons. So I was kind of just like a runner person in high school, but I like went to a really small school. And so I wasn't really interested in like the sports team. So I was still interested in doing sports, but like didn't really compete as much in high school. And then I got to college and I went through like an athletic rebellion phase, I think because it was like my parents were really into it. And I was like, this is not me. I didn't work out. And I think like, I'm not exaggerating when I tell you, Charlie, that I ate pizza for lunch and dinner every single day for a whole year. <laughs> I was just like, I'm going to embrace the unlimited pizza in the dining hall in college and just take a break from sport. But then I think I wanted more of a community and started to miss being in sport. So my sophomore year, I walked on to the rowing team at Columbia University. I didn't really know anything about rowing. Um, I didn't know that you should be tall to do it or like any, I didn't know anything about it. I just knew that it was one of the only teams, and this is true across the country, that you can walk onto with absolutely no experience and like learn relatively quickly. And I think I got like a little lucky and it was unfortunate that like that year there was a lot of attrition in the team. A lot of people dropped out. And so I ended up racing like the Ivy League championship my first year as a walk-on. I'm sure the other people in my boat were not thrilled because I was a terrible rower, but I was so excited. (laughs) I think I just kind of caught the training and competition bug. And I really also found my community through rowing in terms of learning how a team sport can really just empower people and as an opportunity to just work together with people in a really close way. Um, so I loved rowing. I loved rowing in college. I met, you know, obviously, as you know, some of my best friends and through that. And I had an extra year of NCAA eligibility because I walked on my sophomore year at college. So I wanted the opportunity to race lightweight, which in rowing is for women in college as you are 130 pounds or less. And that was just my kind of natural weight at the time. So I was excited to compete with people who are like more similarly my size. And so I applied to a grad program at Stanford, mostly for the opportunity to continue to row. But I also, you know, got my master's, which was nice. And just had like the most amazing experience there. It was the first time that I had a fully female coaching staff. The team was amazing. Stanford is amazing. I met my now husband that year. So that was great. You know, so it was, that was a really special time. 
unfortunately that spring season, I ended up having to have back surgery. That was a really tough time because I had worked really, really hard to get to Stanford and be able to race that spring season. And it ended up that I actually didn't race that spring. I raced in the fall, but I didn't race in the spring because I had to have this back surgery and kind of like medically retire from rowing. So that was a really tough moment, but um, I think I got lucky too that I just like, I wasn't quite ready to put the athletic dream to bed yet. I met my husband at the time who was doing triathlons. And so we started riding bikes together. And then I was like, oh, like, I think I'm actually good at this biking thing. Let me try to explore that a little more. And there's just so many more opportunities for cycling and bike racing in the US and row like rowing. And I don't, I don't know how much about volleyball too, but it's kind of like, there's like a college level and there's like an Olympic level. And there's not a lot of like development opportunities in between that. So cycling, there's more opportunities to race. So I kind of started racing and this was 2018. Um, when I started riding and, and racing my bike and I got into track cycling, which is kind of like the track and field equivalent to marathoning. So it's like a shorter sprintier version of cycling. And yeah, I started to see some progress pretty quickly. I think also just having an athletic background and being able to work hard and rowing, there's a pretty like steady pipeline of like rowers to cyclists these days. And yeah, I, I've just been kind of like working my way up through the ranks, you know, since then I won my first national championship medals two years ago in 2021. Um, and then, <laughs> yeah, it was a national, like also, so I, yeah, I've been a five time national championship medalist as an able-bodied cyclist and then have been invited to some like team USA development camps, um, and kind of selection camps. And then, yeah, this year I got the opportunity to start to serve as a pilot for you know, paracycling squad. And I'm now on Team USA with um, my teammate. And we have been to some yeah big competitions and we were medalists at world championships this summer. So um, those are kind of like the highlights and how I got to where I am now. <laughs> and yeah, it has a, a, a wiggly journey and obviously very different than I, I thought it would be. But I think sports have been a big part of my life for a long time. So I'm really grateful for all those opportunities. You're like literally the uber endurance athlete. I kind of forgot that you were a runner growing up as well. I definitely knew that about you. And I knew your family background with your aunt being a gold medalist, like all of that. I must have just, I guess, in my head, just kind of erased that and thought like, oh, rowing, obviously endurance, cycling, obviously endurance. You're the ultimate endurance from every facet of life of every muscle. I feel like you've used every single endurance-based muscle that you've got in your body, which is kind of insane because I've probably done every sport that doesn't involve endurance over time because it just wasn't, it wasn't quite my thing. The distance in things was never, was never for me. I tried swimming for a little while. I was a fine swimmer. Like I'm good at swimming. Um, the actual yeah. pace and the distance of swimming wasn't my favorite piece <laughs> of it. <laughs> I think my favorite piece of all of swimming was actually just doing the flip turn and that was I thought was super cool, but that was way back in the day. So it's really cool. Like you've done all of these sports that require a lot of aerobic strength and a lot of like just building in a completely different aspect of sport than I've ever been used to. In general, have you always drifted towards like more endurance based sports? I know you've, you've played three now or done three in a way. Have you ever considered doing anything that wasn't necessarily an endurance sport or was it just kind of like this is what's actually, this is what's fit and this is what's felt right for me. So I'm just going to stick with it kind of vibe. Yeah. I mean, sometimes I think that like, I love watching basketball now and watching volleyball. I mean, that's a whole other branch, but I'm like, I would love to be a ball sport athlete, you know? And I feel like if I got back, <laughs> or if I go back, I, I would love that. But I think endurance, yeah, sports are just like what I grew up 
no, like even when I was in kindergarten, I was like, I'm going to run in college. You know, I think it's just, those were like, quote unquote, like real sports to me were like the endurance sports. It is interesting in my partnership now as a pilot for the tandem, we're technically sprint cyclists. So our events very short. So while they're still in aerobic capacity, our target event is like just a little over a minute long. So that definitely oh my has, gosh. yeah, it's been a shift for me for sure, because I've just been training in endurance for literally so long to like mind shift over to that, just like more sprint mindset. But I think it, it, and so that's been like a kind of a fun, like new challenge for me. But yeah, I do think that like the practice of doing an endurance sport and having time to have things go wrong and problem solve, like within the effort has always been like really interesting to me. My coach at Stanford would always say like, you're exploring your edges in that time. And that's always been like really cool to me is like, oh crap, I went out too hard or I, this part is really difficult or these five minutes were really, really felt really awesome. I think that that's something that you don't get in like sprint or anaerobic effort is self-discovery or solving like within the effort. Wow. I love that. And I feel like too, it's kind of cool. You've, you've had so much of your career based on something that's so different. Now you're shifting into this whole new light or Paralympic journey, like uh, on this whole new aspect of it. I really, I want to keep talking about this more for all the listeners who want to hear more just as badly as me about what it means to be a tandem guide, what it means to be kind of on this Paralympic journey with your partner. I would love if you could share background, share what it means to do what you're doing, share how it works with Paralympic cycling. Because I remember you had started to share this journey a couple of weeks ago with me about the way that Paralympic qualification works and the way that you and your partner match up, how you train, all of it. I would love to hear more with it. Yeah. Um, thanks for asking. I feel like it is a really cool opportunity and something that I didn't know that much about until I was asked to do it. But I do think it's a really cool opportunity for able-bodied people, like not only to, you know, travel to these big competitions and like go like achieve some of these dreams, but also like you're getting to support another person like living with disability who like would not be able to do that otherwise. So like, it is a really cool opportunity. And I think that more people should know about it. I think the guiding position in cycling is unique in that if you think about like um, visually impaired, like a runner, for instance, the guide is running next to the athlete. And so you're not actually like contributing to the speed of the athlete. You're just there as like a, a visual guide. And in a cycle, like in a cyclist guide capacity, we're on the same bike, like we're riding a tandem bike. So my training and my strength does have a direct impact on like how fast the bike is going. So in that way, I think it is a really cool like partnership between me and my partner, Hana. Like we're both contributing to the speed of the bike um, and we're a team. Um, and I think that like a lot of my rowing experience has been really cool entering into this opportunity because like I think going into cycling, like that team aspect is something that I missed because cycling is such an individual sport. So getting the opportunity to work with Hana has definitely felt like very cool and like a little bit of a full circle moment for me logistically. And so I started to work with Hana in February and we went out and I went out, she lives in Colorado Springs at the Paralympic and Olympic training center. And then I went out and kind of did a little test run with her. And I think that it is, similar to riding a single bike and very different. The system is very heavy. Um, it's hard to like steer and control, which is kind of my main job, but also 
I'm pretty good at riding a bike at this point. And like it, it didn't, it felt pretty like natural. I think some of the things that people ask me a lot are like, uh, you know, who's contributing like more to the bike or like, or, you know, are you like allowed to pedal or is she just sitting back there or something like that? Like people ask me that a lot. So it's definitely, we see it as like a 50, 50% contribution. Like definitely it's my job to like steer the bike and make kind of like tactical decisions or communicate to her. But definitely like we, we think about it as like a very equal partnership, like in terms of like contributing to the bike. So we went to world championships this summer and then we qualified for Pan Am, Parapan Am Games, which is in November. Um, but really what's going to uh, kind of help us with our qualification towards the Paralympic Games next year in Paris is world championships again in March, which are in Brazil. So um, kind of our performance at that is going to determine, you know, kind of the likelihood of us being on that Paralympic team. But that's definitely that's definitely the goal. So it's, and it's really exciting to be not only yeah on my own journey, but also like be really involved with someone else's journey. Oh my gosh. Yeah. I can't even believe how cool it must feel being a part of such an individual sport, but really getting that team aspect, really getting that partnership that you really enjoy from the rowing, from the lightweight rowing. Medically, you had to stop rowing. You entered a very individual sport, but now you're getting back into that team element. Something that you've talked a lot about too in the past and kind of in what I, how I know you is like your priorities in service and your priorities in connection and team aspect i love that you kind of get that chance to do it in your sport i would love to talk about your passion for service and then why like how that kind of connected to why you have chosen to be on this paralympic journey with your partner i know that you and hana have this great relationship as a partnership now and that it was a really cool avenue that you were asked to be a part of but i know that a huge element is like you could have been shooting for an Olympics as an able-bodied cyclist and going on the Paralympic route is something that is so much more special to you, you were telling me. And so I would love to just hear what service means to you, how important and how much more this kind of being a part of this team and all of it means to you in the aspect of your sport. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, I think that it's since I started, especially doing sports in college, it just became really clear to me looking at the teammates around me versus like other women that I knew the capacity that sport has just to like empower women and, and make us confident and in our bodies and in our minds. Um, so I think that that's always been a huge part of my athletic journey is making sure that space is open and accessible to as many people, but especially women and girls as possible. And yeah, I think that when I was a coach at Stanford, so I coached the lightweights after I you know, graduated from Stanford and during COVID, we didn't have a lot to do, which is when I first read out to Lonnie for strong girls. Cause I wanted to try to like start giving back, you know, to that community. Definitely. I think that that has become a part of my sports identity. And I think that, you know, at times it is very selfless. And then at times it's also kind of selfish when I think that, you know, as an athlete, I feel, yeah, definitely maybe some guilt or some like selfishness of like, this is a journey that's all about me. You know, I'm, I'm married and my husband also gives up a lot, like for a journey that's about me and it's about my goals and my, my stuff, which like, is great. And I think that, you know, I have the capacity to inspire other people through my journey or like give back, but like, ultimately that journey is like a, about me. I think the Paralympic journey is definitely a, an act of, of service for me, right? That's a part I enjoy is being able to enable Hana's journey, but in a very also real way, she is also enabling my journey and my dreams of, of competing at the next level. 
if Hana is not on the team, I'm not on the team. There's not a role for me there if, if Hana is not there. So it's definitely a partnership that goes both ways. And I also think that Hana has been so wonderful in terms of, I was going to, I guess I would like start by saying that like sometimes pilots aren't treated that well in organizations because it's like, oh, you're like a disposable piece of like equipment or like we could always get another person to fill your spot. Like Hana has always been really, really wonderful in terms of advocating for me and advocating for like, you know, accommodations for me and things that, you know, make me feel like, um, yeah, special and, and wanted and a part of the team and a part of the program. So, yeah, I mean, I think that that this journey has been really special in terms of I do feel like it aligns more with my values than a lot of the like Olympic selection process on the able-bodied side. But I do think that it's really been, yeah, enabled by the person that Hana is and the relationship that we have together. So it goes both ways. That's really awesome. It's a really heartwarming thing when it when a partnership is so dual-sided. What I'm hearing here is like you are giving you're giving a piece of yourself to Hana in this team and as a guide and you're kind of like, heck yeah, I'm a part of this team. I am all in. I am committed to making this happen. And Hana's like, you're not just like an object that I'm using on this journey. You are a piece of my journey. And it's such a cool thing. As much as you're giving to her, she's giving back, sharing with you. It's a shared experience, but instead of it a shared separate experience, your guys' experience has become so entirely connected and together. And that's as a huge result to like Hana bringing you in as like, you're my partner, you're my ride or die, let's do this thing. And you saying, heck yeah, I'm 100% bought in. And like, therefore, like the connection grows so much more and becomes probably so much more valuable in that partnership for both parties. But like, especially just, I don't know, from my perspective, of if I was in that boat, like I know that that would be such a hugely valuable thing to me to not necessarily feel just like an object to my partner or just like an, a vehicle for like as a method of qualification. Like you've become a team member who is qualifying just as much as Hana is. Yeah. And I think that there is like definitely potential for an imbalance in both directions, right? Like Hana can't see and so and i have a lot more athletic experience than she does so there's definitely a potential for me to just be like hey i know what's best i know what's happening let me like take charge and also you know in the other way right for her to say like you're just my pilot this is my project this is my thing so it is for sure an intentional partnership that like we both work to and it's really important to me also that like yeah, Hana's voice is always heard and her opinions like are just as important as mine and her experience of being on the bike, like just because she has less, you know, athletic experience doesn't mean like her feelings and her yeah experience of being on the bike are any less important or valid. I love that. It's a really, again, it's a really beautiful partnership that you guys have been have been developing and are continuing to develop while you're on this journey together. And I, I also, I kind of want to go back and highlight like this Paralympic qualification path of you were telling me before we were on this call and before we were on this pod about how varying levels of disabilities in the Paralympics are all competing for the same spots in cycling. Yeah. So I think and this is just in cycling. Like you said, every Paralympic sport has a very different um, setup. But in cycling, blind and visually impaired uh, cyclists are always on tandem. So that's kind of its own separate, like, at competition we're only going to race against other tandems and other like visually impaired athletes 
Um, and then aside from that, there's five categories. So C1 being kind of the most disabled and C5 being the least disabled. Um, and so there's um, kind of a medical team that's employed by, you know, the Paralympic movement in general that does classifications for athletes. And they um, will do that every couple of years or depending on kind of the nature of um, the disability. So C1 through C5. And then at competition, you're only going to race against those other people that are in your category. But the for the Paralympic selection process, so let's say that there are six spots for female Paralympic athletes. We are going to be competing against every single other Paralympic cyclist athlete in the country, regardless of disability. So how they do that is they only do it based off of like time trial events, so timed events. And then there's going to be kind of like a gold medal standard, a national standard, and how close you are to that standard is kind of like your ranking number. So how close we are to our standard and how close, you know, a C5 woman is to her standard, um, that's how we kind of get ranked against other athletes. Something that's special about Paralympic sport in general that's included, I don't know about a lot of other sports, but definitely in cycling, um, there's something called ring fencing where they want to make sure that for the medal events, there's like a competitive size field. So some events they'll, they'll look and they'll say, Hey, like we actually don't have enough people like in this event. So for one of your six spots, you need to send a woman in a C3 category. And so that's kind of another like wrinkle in the selection process that like you could be ranked top three, but if three of your spots get ring fenced, all of a sudden you're number six in the list or something like that. So in terms of like, they want to make sure that the Paralympics is like a very full event and all the fields are really well represented. So the Paralympic movement will also take some, like, yeah, take some steps to make sure that everything is kind of well attended and fair there. So there's some parts, and I think this is true, like across all Paralympic and Olympic movements, like there's some parts of the qualification process that are within your control. And then there's some parts that are not. I love finding out about this like every single time that we've ever talked about it it is so cool and incredible like how this system works and how there's such a wide range and such a heavily like inclusive movement in the Paralympics of your classification of disability and how you're not going to be necessarily competing as a C5 against a C1 because then What's the point of going to the Paralympics and competing as a disabled athlete in your class? I love that and how there's the ability to kind of qualify based on your class ranking based on. I think the ring fencing is a little bit scary to me. Like you were saying, okay, like we might be whatever ranking we're at, but if there's ring fencing here, we have a lower shot of getting in. That goes completely out of your control like you were mentioning. But I think that it's such a fascinating aspect of qualification that probably gets overlooked when people are watching or thinking of the Paralympics. And like, I had no idea that aspect of the Paralympics. And I think that that is such a cool thing. And I want like, I'm curious and gives me so many thoughts about how many more Paralympic guests and athletes that I want to have on this podcast so that we can bring kind of like more attention to that entire world of para sports in general. And I think that paracycling has such like a cool version of qualification that I've loved hearing about from you. And so I'm so happy that listeners have gotten the chance to kind of learn and experience this through all of it. It's it's a really cool facet of your sport that is definitely like that I haven't necessarily ever thought of, but it's such an important piece of the kind of this qualification cycle that you're in too. Yeah, I think definitely a misconception of a lot of people is that like, athletes with disabilities just automatically make teams or automatically make like 
the Paralympics. So yeah, that's definitely not true. And there's a very rigorous, right? Like, you know, selection process, the same with the Olympics. You bring a lot of very incredible perspective. And again, like attention to para sports that don't necessarily get as much attention. I'm going to kind of cycle back, cycle, huh, little pun there for you, um, <laughs> cycle back, yeah, haha, cycle back to kind of the beginning of looking at why you've chosen being a paraguide or why you've chosen cycling, all of it, kind of like fallen in love with it. We, as you know, being a huge part of the Strong Girls United fam over the last several years, and as our returning listeners know, this is a little series taken as a spinoff from a Strong Girls United practice that we do. For our new listeners who are listening in and tuning in for the first time, Strong Girls United likes to do a mental practice with our members of Strong Girls United, where we like to say, at the end of your day, no matter how good, no matter how bad, find three good things that have happened this day. And it's a mindset shift. I know for me, I love doing this practice. And it's like, write down those three good things. It feels so good to write down those three good things because no matter how good your day has been, no matter how bad your day has been, you are always going to be able to find three good things. And it is going to make the situation, the day, the everything feel exponentially better. And it's going to be able to shift your mindset from, oh my gosh, this day was the worst to, oh my gosh, there was still some good that came out of this. It was a tough day, but I'm really happy that I still found some good in it. And so taken as a spinoff from that, we call it our three favorite things category because I think something that's so important that athletes know that people who look at athletes from kind of the outside world and say that it's a really glamorous lifestyle. We know that there's some glamour, but there's a lot of downsides and a lot of valleys to the conjoining hills, but sometimes the valleys get really, really low. But so what I love to do with athletes and with guests that we've had is saying your three favorite things about your sport. So find your three good things about sport. Yeah, I think about cycling in particular. Uh, something I really love about track cycling is you get to go really fast. Like I've gone upwards of 40 miles an hour on my bike, which is like, I didn't think that I would be <laughs> like, yeah, <laughs> I didn't think I would be like a speed demon necessarily because like running and rowing, you move so slow, but it's like. It's so fun and it's such a rush to like, yeah, get to like just go really, really fast on your bike. So I love that part. That's uh, number one. Number two is I think it's really cool in track cycling. You ride bikes that don't have any brakes. And that's mostly like a safety thing because if you're all riding around in the big pack and somebody were to like jam on their brakes really suddenly, it can actually be really dangerous and cause a lot more crashes. But I sometimes I just like have these like a little bit out of body experiences where I'm riding around with like a big group of people on the track and we're going like, you know, 30, 35 miles an hour. And there's just like this so such a high level of trust that like everyone around you knows what they're doing. And they've also like taken care of their bike and their bike's not about to fall apart. So it's just this like very cool like moment where, yeah, like you just are trusting these complete strangers most of the time, like literally with your life. So it's. And I think that that's probably true of all like, you know, fast speed sports, but that's something that's really special about cycling. And I, I love that, that leap of faith and that trust. And then I would say like the, the third part is probably that endurance sport bit that I was talking saying a little bit about earlier, but just like the continued ability of sport to like challenge me and make me, yeah, learn new things about myself and continue to push me is something that I probably will do forever. So I definitely like that part about it. I love that so much. Yeah. New thing that you learned about yourself. You are what is considered a speed demon as coined by yourself, which I love using that term. That's so fun. I did not know that you could go that fast in track cycling. That is insane. 
Like that is well into what cars drive on and faster than cars <laughs> on most roads, unless you're on a freeway. And like, I'm thinking of that, like that is, it, it's not unfathomable, but it's absolutely crazy to me that you get that fast. Like, I'm just thinking of like watching you on the track. I really want to come to an event now of like, just watching like, like I just like can hear almost like the onomatopoeia of it, of you guys like zooming by. And I love that there's like a sense of trust between opponents too. I don't know many sports where you have like a sense of innate trust between the opponents that you're racing against at all times too. Like that's a very cool aspect of the sport that I really, I don't know of any other sport that it has like that. Yeah. Well, maybe like race car driving, I assume, you know, it's kind of like, okay, you know, something like that's what I assume. I mean, I don't know anything about race car driving. Um, Yeah. I know it. I know that we get the (laughs) sounds and that's about it. Wow, that's yeah, it's so cool. I'm loving learning about cycling on this call. Like it's it's been very fun for me to get to kind of like chat and learn more and more about what you do and what it looks like and all of it. Yeah. Okay, now that we've now that we've cycled back to our three favorite things category, I want to jump back forward or I guess it's kind of jumping somewhere in the middle of talking about your journey through sport. We kind of talked about this at the beginning of the fact that you started out in running, um, going back to your love of endurance sports that I will never be able to find the same love for. But looking at kind of the transition periods, you had talked a little bit about how injury kind of shifted your career out of rowing, how rowing kind of came to you as you missed sport. And so let's do it. I would love to kind of talk more about transitions, what transitions in sport looked like for you and what it was like jumping into new sports that you didn't have background in like were there nerves what did the tough bits look like what did the best parts feel like what were transitions like for you in and out of new and old sports yeah I would say broadly like the thing that I love about transitions and even I would count like able-bodied cycling to like guiding as as one of those transitions also is the ability to learn new skills you know i think that like endurance sports can feel like they're not skill-based sports so and they're more like just effort-based and so the ability to like really dive into like a new skill has been really cool for me and then i think partnered with that the good parts are you get to improve really quickly when you're a new athlete as you know like in any sport when you've been in it for a long time like getting better becomes harder and harder so the really fun parts of a transition have been yeah the gains are like much easier and it's it's really cool to have that initial upward trajectory i think the tough parts have been yeah like feeling like a novice and feeling like oh maybe i don't belong here or feeling like i missed out um definitely cycling like you can pick it up at any age but there's for sure a benefit to having like really good bike handling skills which a lot of people who started racing and riding their bikes fast when they were six years old like just have that i don't and similar to rowing right like if you've been rowing for a long time like you have skills and a capacity that you know, I didn't have. But overall, I think that the benefits have outweighed the negatives in transition times. I would say that like my transition out of rowing was very difficult because of the injury piece. But I think in hindsight, it was a really valuable look into like, it almost felt like a mini retirement from sport. And so I got the opportunity then to start working with a sports psychologist for the first time and start to do some like exercises around my identity and start to like 
kind of separate like being an athlete with who I am. And I feel like that's a really valuable lesson. Like now kind of when I'm thinking about my own retirement from like professional sports, I think that that transition almost felt like a mini retirement. So that was really valuable lesson that came out of that time. Yeah, almost like a a low point, what felt like a really low point at the time. Now, like reflecting back, it's been like the thing that's going to prepare you the most for like a huge transition that will come in the years to come. And I feel like it's like goes back to that saying of like hindsight is always twenty twenty. of like you look back on things and you're like, wow, what I could have done or even like looking back on that, like, wow, I hated that in the moment. That was such a hard thing for me, but that was so good for me. I think that there's a, a lot of my college career that I look back on that I'm like, wow, losing was not my favorite thing. And I lost a lot of games. I won more than I lost, thankfully, by the end of my career. But I mean, my first two years of college, I had a losing record overall. I had lost more games than I had won. So like learning to lose, like that was the worst thing ever when I was going through it. But now that I'm looking back on it, losses weigh so much less on me mentally, physically, like everything like they just take so much less of a toll because I learned that that's a huge piece of sport and so like I think I mean obviously it's a different comparison of like injury versus losing but it's still like career lowlights looking back like help you help prepare you for a lot of what's to come in the future I think this is probably like trailing us into a whole new category of what do lowlights we like kind of started touching on this but like what do lowlights look like for you and besides like even I know that your back injury was probably what we might consider a decent career low light, but what have kind of low lights looked like for you? How do you handle and work through them? And what have they kind of taught you? Yeah, I mean, I don't know how much time do you have? <laughs> yeah, low lights are a big part of any athletic career. And I think probably the thing that people, like you were saying, like don't, don't realize the most looking from the outside, right? Like everybody says like, oh, like you're living the dream or like, oh, you're like, it's so glamorous. And I'm like, it is not like that, you know, 80% of the time. So yeah, I mean, I think for sure, like my back surgery and like my back injury around that time was super difficult. I think a lot of parts of that were like, it was pitched to me as something that was going to be less impactful than it was. I had like a ton of pain around it and I've like, trained and raced with chronic pain, like pretty much since then. So that is like almost six years ago. And that has been definitely like the parts when I've come the closest to just like throwing in the towel. And like, I think that living with chronic pain, even if it's like not that bad on any given day, just after months and months of that, that has been really, really difficult. And I think like the other parts of that have been tough is that like, and people don't understand is like, yeah, like I'm paying for all my own healthcare and all my own PT and any like, you know, kind of solutions that I'm trying to, to, you know, create to those things. Like those are all on me as well. And so sometimes like anytime when I'm talking to an injured athlete, I'm like, but like buckle up because it's like, it's a part-time job trying to heal yourself. And then it's a full-time job trying to train. And then also most of us are working. And so it's like, it's so easy to be so hard on yourself, but it's also like, it's a really difficult time to be really seriously injured. So for sure that was, that was a low light. And I think like, I just credit like my husband with being super, super support, like supportive and, and him just saying like, whatever you need to spend or whatever you need to do to like get healthy, like that's really important. And so like that just like took off a lot of the like guilt for me or like, oh, like I shouldn't do this. So I think that like, that was really helpful. I've seen a sports psychologist almost like, you know, regularly since 
since my back surgery. So that's been really helpful in, in terms of like mental practices. And then just like keeping busy and continuing to develop my hobbies like outside of the sport were helpful in that time. I had a pretty bad concussion in 2019. So that was another like injury and also like a big dose into kind of like mental like in, like TBIs and kind of head injuries. That was a low light. And then I think also like something that I think sometimes people in my circles don't understand who have been even like Olympians is like the mental pressure of like trying to make it like trying to like get there is huge being kind of like on the bubble or on the edge of like Olympic selection or like national team selection or like you're just like trying to catch a break those parts have been really tough and it's like tough to justify like hey I'm doing all this or I'm spending all this money or I'm spending all this time and it hasn't been like an easy road towards like, and then I won this and then I got selected for that. And so I think just definitely had some like low lights at races or after crashes or stuff like that, where I think just like over time, it kind of wears on you with, yeah, like continuing to put in so much of yourself towards a journey that like, doesn't feel like it always loves you back. So I think those are kind of like my low lights overall. What is something that you do to like continue to find motivation in kind of those lower lights? Because like you were saying, like the sport doesn't always treat you like it doesn't always love you back. Like there's a huge element of sport that like you love the sport. The sport has a love-hate relationship with you, which ends up resulting longer term potentially in a love-hate relationship of you with the sport. How do you kind of find motivation even when you're going through like a lower cycle where you're like, "Mm, I'm not in love with what I'm doing. Why am I doing this? How do you kind of help shift? And I know you've talked a little bit about your relationship kind of with seeing a sports psychologist and how that's affected. And if that has a huge piece of it too, I'd love to hear, but like kind of like what continues to motivate and drive you even through the lower pieces of it all? Yeah, I think definitely something I've learned is like, I think when we're going through low points, we tend to want, or I tend to want to like turn in on myself. So like making it a point to like reach out to my people during those times has always been really helpful. I think I also do like three good things practice, which seems like a small thing, but for sure, like, like you were saying, like, I think it's good to just like, remember that there are good parts, even in, even in the tough moments. And yeah, I mean, I think work with sports psychologist has just been helpful for me to kind of like continue to remember to like live towards my values. And like my values are being of service to the community, being you know, a supportive teammate, being like a good partner, being a good person. And like, at the end of the day, if I'm doing those things, then like the other things are, are less important at the end of the day. I love that. It's like, it's a grounding motivation. I feel like your motivation is almost like grounding yourself in everything else. And then it helps you to be more motivated or like, as a result, you gain motivation, but like grounding becomes kind of your motivation, which is a new lens of motivation. I like that, like that. It's like settling in order to, all of this is cool at the end of it, but let's settle and figure out what like my values are and where they go from there. Yeah. Yeah. I love it. Do you have, so this is like looking back at kind of your career and like, again, like what motivates you, what goes into like your favorite pieces of sport, but also just kind of with who you are, you talk about like how your values are kind of like what guides you and what drives you to do what you do. What, if anything, do you consider to be like your biggest inspiration for what you do? This is like a deep question that I'm just like throwing out there, but I think that 
something that I love hearing from you again, like you've gone on this really awesome athlete journey through so many different facets and being such a strong valued individual finding out your driving inspiration i would love to hear as much as you are willing to share yeah i mean definitely i think like i have i'm so lucky that i have so many like strong female athletes in my life like for sure my aunt and it's been really special to like talk to her through this journey and like connect with her and like you know get to hear her say too like people think it was all sunshine and roses and it wasn't almost like it feels like being an elite athlete is like part of like my family inheritance so it like makes me feel close to my family to do that so that's like a really special like piece of inspiration i would say secondly like i made a decision after school to like try to be an athlete because i think that having this experience is gonna like help me in my career advocate for like girls and women in sports because I think I've just learned so much about like the actual nitty gritty of being a female athlete and trying to make it, especially in like more niche sport, have that experience that I can then like help others is, is really inspiring to me. And then also like, I think a big part of like my like values are like a commitment. And I said, I was going to do this thing and like, I am going to do it to the best of my ability. So like, I think also kind of like trying to find inspiration in like, yeah, in myself and just being like, there's a lot of times and twists. And also, frankly, like, I don't think that many people would have been that sad if I stopped doing sport, you know, like, it's not it's not like I'm being like paid a million dollars to like show up to work. So like, yeah, I think a lot of it has been like a self motivated journey. And like I like to find like inspiration and kind of like strength in that too. I love it. Tailing on that. What is right now? What does success look like for you in and out of sport? Yeah, I think like, within sport, you know, just being like a really good partner to Hana and like helping that team thrive is what like kind of would look like success for me over this next year. And just making sure that like, yeah, she feels really good about our performances and our training and stuff like that. Yeah. And then I think like trying to find the good and the, I think, you know, it, it has been like a hard journey. So like success in, in sport kind of continues to be like trying to find the wonder in it again and not like be as jaded, you know, as like maybe you'd like to be. Um, oh my think, gosh. Like, yes. Yeah. <laughs> in my personal <laughs> life too, like trying to be as present as possible. Like I travel a lot. And so yeah, trying to be like a present, a partner as I can. And yeah, just trying to like live into my values in my personal life as well. And yeah, I think like continuing to also like validate my husband is part of this journey and like continuing to bring him along is like, that would also mean success for me. Oh, wow. I love that. And I think it's a really cool, like present moment success. And I know I love that you're like in this moment, this is what I'm doing. And I think that that's why I almost framed the question as like right now, because I mean, going back to again, like a core strong girls United mentality is being where your feet are. And I think a huge piece of sport and especially on the journey that you're on right now is like being where your feet are. Like you're taught, you were explaining earlier of like the Pan American games are a huge focus right now, but they're not even like the biggest piece of your Olympic qualification journey that's coming up in March, but you've got to focus on the Pan American games because that comes first and then world championships is after. And so it's like being very present in the moment so that you can be the best partner so that you can be the best partner on the track with Hana, I had to think about like what the sporting like 
setting was for you. Yeah. I was like, track. Okay, good. For me, I'm like, beach. <laughs> but I love that, like, it's like being very present and like being on the track, off the track. Like, what is being in that moment look like as a success point for you? It's a very cool framework to kind of guide yourself in this really competitive, really what could and likely is a very high stress time in this next year that you're on. So it's a very cool, like living in the present moment in order to help succeed. Yeah. Yeah. Your life has been like a giant series of transitions that have led you to do some really awesome things. And it's funny, I'm like looking back to when we met again, back in like the weight room at Stanford, you were the lightweight coach at the time for the lightweight rowers at Stanford. And like, that was like piece number four of your like transitional journey. And now we're into like six or seven and it's so cool. So I'm like, I'm just loving hearing about all of this. So thank you for that. Yeah, of course. Thank you for also seeing it as a positive. Sometimes I'm like, <laughs> what am I even doing? But yeah, it's been, it's definitely been a journey and yeah, different than I ever thought it would look like. Right. I think, you know, sometimes I thought I was like going to go to the Olympics for rowing, you know, and then here I am doing something that looks very different, but yeah, I mean, I, I wouldn't trade it. Yeah. For anything. So I love it. If you would have, if you look back, could you have imagined, so let me think of like when you were in middle school, when you were in high school, when you were in college, pre any decision of cycling in each of those phases, I know that you've always been like, I'm going to the Olympics, which sport were you going to the Olympics for in each phase? Like you were saying, like in college, it was for rowing. Like you're like, I'm going to the Olympics for rowing. Let's do this. In each phase, what did you want to go to the Olympics for? Like, what were you like? Yes, this is my thing of what I'm doing. <laughs> I feel like in middle school, it definitely would have been skiing. I was like a Nord, I did like Nordic ski racing, but also like, I thought that downhill ski racing was very cool. So probably I would have said skiing at that point. And then in high school, I don't know that I like, I could probably make something up for the sake of this conversation, but honestly, I was like very <laughs> into other things at that point. I like wanted to be a child and like, I wanted to go to med school or like, I don't know, like all these other things. But like, I mean, definitely I was into running then. So I think that would have been it if I had been that. But I think that like the athletic flame took a little bit of a hiatus. I mean, obviously like I ran a marathon. So it was like, I was still like working out, but I think, um, yeah, I think it, it's, I don't think that I could have, would have maybe said I was going to the Olympics in high school, but then in college for sure rowing. That's literally, I'm like cackling, laughing internally right now, like trying to not ruin the audio here, but you're like, yeah, no, like athletics took a hiatus of mind, but like also I ran a marathon, like casually. I'm like, okay, that's so cool. Like again, endurance, endurance is not in my like long distance, any running, biking, anything long distance, just, and we are not partners in crime the way that they are for you. But I'm just, I just think that that's the funniest thing ever that you're like, yeah, no, athletics not present, but like, you know, did a marathon too. Yeah. <laughs> It's literally so cool. I also love for listeners who of all ages of sport in athletics in your journey, I feel like Skylar, you are such a cool example of like, you had no idea that this was going to be the path that you were ending up taking. You didn't even know it when you were in college. So like for college listeners, if you think that you know what you're doing, you might, but you also might not. And that's totally completely fine because 
there are so many facets of life that you can that you will follow and that you can follow and it's such it's it's a very cool sense of reality of like every phase of life when you're 10 when you're 15 when you're 20 when you're five when I mean like I was convinced that I was going to be a vet when I was eight years old and then I was convinced, well, I mean, for a really long time, I was going to be an architect. I did study architecture in undergrad, but realized that there's a whole other side of design that I really enjoy a little bit more than architecture itself. But I loved the journey that I went on to decide that 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 wasn't the journey for me. So again, like hearing for you that you're like, yeah, I had all these transitions and like I could have done a hundred different things over my time. But at the end of the day, like I've gotten to this point of life that's, again, I've said it like four times. It's really cool because... It is. It's just, it's got this high level of fascination because again, you had no idea 10 years ago, five years ago that this was going to be your journey. And now you're on it and you're like, heck yeah, let's get it done. Let's qualify. (laughs) Definitely. Yeah. I would say, you know, research kind of tells us that women don't peak in endurance sports until like they're 32. So for sure, like if you're a college listener and you're thinking about a sport transition or like you want to stay in sports, like after college is definitely like not too late to try something or do something different. Yeah. I mean, it's obviously like I have been really privileged to be able to do sports that don't like make me a lot of money. So like acknowledging that is really important, I think. And like you said, yeah, like I have transitioned so many times and I think the vulnerability to like be a novice at something new is like a cool life skill and so yeah I mean we didn't even talk about that like my degrees are in like Russian literature so like literally like it doesn't doesn't matter like what what you study or like what job you have or like what sport you're doing like it is for sure possible to transition and and try new things at some point, we'll might, we might have to circle back to that in like an, in another episode because <laughs> Russian literature is the craziest thing I think you've said on this podcast. Of all the things that you've done, the fact that you studied Russian literature and those were what your degrees were in, that is jaw-dropping and so cool. So we might have to do an episode two at some point because I know that people are probably like, hey, crazies, you've been talking for an hour now. Um, <laughs> but so... That is so cool. And I can't wait to hear more about that as we continue to talk throughout the years and throughout probably off this call. But I think that the last little bit, and it follows the pillars of Strong Girls United and the pillars of why we honestly created this podcast in the first place. So I'm taking you in for our Strong Girls United series questions, following the pillars of our nonprofit for those who are first-time listeners, the pillars of Strong Girls United are strong bodies, kind hearts, and unstoppable minds. We bring these practices in with our girls, with our members, and I'm so proud to like be able to share and live life like following those pillars. And so I my favorite piece of this podcast is hearing the like simplest little answers. So do with this what you want with your answers. You can explain them as long or as short, but Number one, how do you keep your body strong? I love lifting weights. It's funny that you said that we were in the weight room together, but um, that's always been a part of my practice. So I, and like at any age for anybody, I think it's really important and really fun. So weight room. A hundred percent agree with you on that. I think that that's probably my answer too. Lifting weights is literally like 
the cure to any stress that I've ever had or any bad day. I literally, I'm like, I'm having a tough day. Time to go to the gym. Like, and lifting weights is like my favorite thing. I love yeah, sports. I love playing, but lifting weights like is just like my favorite like additive to sport. So I love that you said that because I'm like, heck yeah. And again, such a fun origin story of how we met in the first place. <laughs> All right. Next up is how do you keep your heart kind? Yeah, I just, I think that there's definitely a little bit of gatekeeping that happens in elite sports in all elite sports that like, this is my space and like, you can't be in it. And I've tried really hard to be very kind and encouraging of people who are trying to get into sport for the first time. I think we already have enough issues with like not enough women feeling comfortable in sport. So especially trying to be a mentor and like give advice when I can. I hope listeners know they can find me on Instagram and my DMs are always open for people who are, you know, looking to get into cycling or sport or transition or anything like that. So I just try to be yeah, a really open member of the community and helping to make especially cycling more accessible. Beautiful. <laughs> and then last, but most certainly not least on this list is how do you keep your mind unstoppable? Yeah, um, I think that my for sure. My intellectual side has always been a part of who I am. I loved being a student athlete. I still love, you know, being, you know, an intellectual crossword solver and um, a reader. So I love keeping my mind sharp that way. I also have talked about this a lot on the call, but like, I think working with a sports psychologist or a therapist has been really helpful for me to like use my mind as a tool to kind of support my, you know, athletic endeavors has been really special for me. So yeah, that's something that I would encourage people to look into if you know, you're feeling like your mind is like holding you back rather than like helping you be unstoppable. I love it. Skylar, thank you so much for coming today. I've like thanked you a bunch of times already, I know, but I, I really can't thank you enough for coming on and sharing your story and your journey and just these very genuine answers that I'm so excited that the world is hearing because again, like there's so much value to everything that you've said. And even going back to the unstoppable mind portion of like, let your mind aid you and serve as a catalyst for your career and talking about the importance of that and seeing somebody if you need it to, in order to help make that mind a catalyst. I'm, I've just, I've loved hearing kind of everything. So really thank you so much for coming on. Thank you so much for having me and also for doing this for Strong Girls. I feel so inspired every time that I'm able to hop on one of these calls. And so the fact that we get to serve as a platform for inspiration for others just adds so much, add, makes it so much more important and even more inspiring uh, in the long run. So thank you. And for all our listeners who have been listening, thank you so much for joining us for another episode today. You're listening to Strong Girls Pod. I'm your host, Charlie Ekstrom, here with Skylar Espinosa, and we hope that you have a great rest of your day. Thank you. Thank you for taking the time to join us today on Strong Girls Pod. In the spirit of growing community and inspiring strong girls and women everywhere, please subscribe, rate, and leave a comment about our podcast. Tell your friends, family, really everyone to listen in and enjoy. This podcast is sponsored by Strong Girls United, a nonprofit with a mission to empower girls to be strong, confident, and resilient through sports mentorship and mental health programming. Visit sgunitedfoundation.org to learn more on how you can get involved today.